0: Welcome to another episode of Mission Compliance, Unleashing Growth Potential for Defense Contractors, where we delve into the world of defense contracting and explore key topics that shape the industry. In today's episode, we embark on a journey to uncover the secrets of building a resilient and secure supply chain. Supply chain security is of paramount importance in def- in the defense industry where the flow of materials components and information must be protected from potential vulnerabilities and disruptions from identifying vulnerabilities to implementing risk mitigation measures we will explore the key steps and consideration necessary to create to create a comply chain that can withstand the test of time this episode promises to deliver valuable knowledge and actionable takeaways Get ready to fortify your understanding of supply chain security and defense contracting and unlock the potential for a resilient future. Let's go. We're joined once again by Mike Frieder, president of On Call Compliance Solutions, a CMC registered practitioner and CMC certified professional assessor. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Hey, always a pleasure, Roman. Thanks for having me. There's been supply chain issues all across the country, and the defense industry was not immune. With these shortages and issues come risks. What are the key vulnerabilities and risks that defense supply chains face today? Uh, that's a, that's a great question, Roman. And you know, I think I think with
1: you know the the sort of question and topic that we're getting into today, we're sort of going back to the origins of why. DFARS laws have begun to really attack the risk subject and also why, you know, DFARS 7012 came about when it came to um, controlled unclassified information and also, uh, you know, why NIST SP80171 all of a sudden went from something that wasn't the government's problem to something that the government felt was its problem and, and that they needed to step in and provide solvency for private defense contractors for Um, And so, you know, sort of the history of this is is that uh, years and years and years ago, the government began doing studies about what would happen if we went to war. And one of the vulnerabilities that they came up with in their study was that, you know, unlike many countries that have either dictators or a more centralized leadership uh, where they've chosen to sort of more control private industry than we do here in the United States where it's truly free, Uh, What they began to discover is is that um, when when the government doesn't control the supply chain, when the government doesn't directly have a hand in controlling defense contractors or their own local domestic defense industrial base equivalent, uh, there begins to become some lack of symmetry, right? So some companies think it's very, very important to invest in risk management. Other companies invest zero into risk management. And so what that created is a great risk for the United States uh, in that the companies that were involved in defense contracting uh, tended to put profit first, of course. And so they did not give stability really very much emphasis. And, you know, with a lack of stability comes a lack of an ability to predictably produce under pressure. So if it kind of makes sense, what happens is, let's say that you're in China or Russia or something like that. What begins to happen is, you know, the government gets involved in large ways with, let's say, an ammunition factory, and they control that and they have unlimited resources to do that, right, in their own currency. And so they can build those resources to be more robust. Here, it's true capitalism. Uh, We really have to, you know, continue to Uh, fund those companies through government contracts and things like that. And again, these are for-profit companies. And so ultimately, it's just not built the same way. So what we wound up doing is recognizing this risk. And we said, hey, look, we've got to put some policies in place to strengthen our supply chain. Because if we go to war and our supply chain is vulnerable, right? The person that makes the specific ammunition that, let's say, goes into an F-35, right? Maybe the people that make the Stinger missiles or something like that. If they have a problem, we're screwed. There's not that many people in the world that can make those specific missiles that fit that specific plane. And because the government doesn't directly control a lot of these private companies, um, it creates this sort of ugly scenario where they they've really kind of make sure these private companies survive. It's in the United States government's best interest to really make these companies way more stable than the average company. So as a part of that, they legally mandated <clears throat> that they begin to do things to stabilize themselves. Obviously, cyber attack throughout the last 20 to 30 years has become a major, major piece of warfare. Uh, cyber warfare may even be larger than traditional warfare. I would probably say that's a, a very fair statement. And so as a result, it's a, it's a more than fair risk to analyze as well. And so as a result, ultimately, the government said, hey, look, these small companies, mid companies, whatever, all private companies that are supplying defense and protecting our country here, they have to, by law bring in risk management uh, capabilities, and we need to help them. And that's when they basically said, hey, look, we're gonna provide you with a roadmap to do it, and then we're gonna make this stuff into law. And the ultimate goal of this is to make a resilient, safe and reliable supply chain for the United States and its allies to produce war material, okay? So should we ever be attacked or if we need to go attack somebody else, we need to know that there's always gonna be more bullets that'll go in the gun. Interestingly, this is the exact issue that Ukraine has. This is precisely the issue that Ukraine has. They cannot get enough ammunition in the country. They cannot get enough uh, guns to fire that ammunition in the country. And they literally have a massive supply chain issue. And in fact, when Ukraine has been winning, it is because their supply chain to the battlefield has been superior over Russia's supply chain to the battlefield. Um, Again, the very beginning of the war, another great example of this is Russia had one big giant column headed from the border to Kyiv. Uh, of of military uh, vehicles and food and you know artillery, et cetera. That was it. It was like this one column, and all they had to do is basically cut off the column, the supply chain was dead. Um, and they left a lot of soldiers in that column, uh, pretty much there, I mean, those those were people that were that were sitting ducks. And so ultimately the whole reason why all these D clauses got changed and why NIST SP 800 171 is there and why CMMC is here is ultimately to make the supply chain more resilient against a risk that most business owners don't understand very well. They don't understand that cyber attack is already happening to them. They don't understand that there are dormant attacks that could wake up, and they need to get things in place such as seam solutions and firewalls and all kinds of things that are far more robust than the typical average defense contractor has in place and real cybersecurity and real risk management, all of those things have to get into place. And if they're not, it leaves not just our entire country vulnerable, but also leaves that particular company vulnerable because ultimately if they walk in the door, and this is just about every company that I know, if they walk in the door and their computer systems don't work, they're not making payroll, they're not invoicing, they're not delivering, they're not producing, they're not doing anything. And that's how, that's how reliant everyone has become on computers. So as a result, Um, you know, again, that's why it's such a paramount issue. It's why we're taking so much time and effort to really dive into this and make it law. And the government's doing the heavy lift in terms of telling us what we need to do to be safe. And they're constantly evolving this. Um, and yeah, I I think, you know, in terms of supply chain, this is really and truly, you know, where all of this comes from is that need to be stable and defend ourselves. Uh, against what other countries are trying to do to us
0: yeah you know supply chain issues can cause a real real problem for a lot of people like you mentioned uh ukraine is is having issues right now they're not able to get the ammunition and the weaponry that they need and and that's part of their struggle so it it definitely creates a problem in the defense industry but um when issues arise in business regardless of what field it's in, whether it's defense or in any other kind of business, versatility and agility are are important when keeping your business operating. That being said, what strategies and best practices can defense contractors implement to enhance their supply chain security?
1: Great question. You know, and interestingly when we work with clients one-on-one to help them get compliant and understand what these regulations are all about, we bring a litany of standard operating procedures. Uh, policies and training to the table. And we do this for our clients because the average client, even large clients, I mean, Fortune 500 companies do not have a good plan in place and they really don't know how to address this issue. Um, So, you know, I'll tell you, the first thing is, if if you're in this situation, I would definitely recommend reaching out to us because it's not, it's really hard to start from scratch. Uh, I'll just be honest with you, it, it is. Uh, I, we probably have thousands of hours worth of, of legal fees and, um, you know, attorney time and policy development time in there. Uh, these things have been developed over years. I mean, the cool thing for our clients is they just sort of get this handed to them and then tailored to them. And that's what we do as a company. But uh, the first thing I would do is I would start with, you know, any anyone who is going to be a subcontractor on a defense project who becomes a You know, and, you, and you've got to tell them what the project is for in order for them to understand or, or your choice is to, is to do that. Um, in other words, not sanitizing what what they're exposed to as far as defense information, um, you need to get some sort of a questionnaire to them to ask, "Hey, are you compliant?" Because if they're not, and you don't have evidence that they are compliant, uh, that can be really that can be a big deal. Because if they go get attacked, right? If if there's a link in your supply chain that gets attacked, guess who's on the hook for that? It's you. Um, you know, you've got to deal with cyber incident reporting. You may have a pause on the work. While the DOD goes to investigate that in a forensic investigation, they can freeze out the whole contract until they're confident that everybody involved is secure. Uh, Again, I think we're still learning what some of the consequences can even be. But I would go so far as to say I think they're practically unlimited because let's be honest, when when the DOD decides that they need to take action, such as stopping the flow of information, the first thing that happens is they're going to pause the work on that contract till they can figure out how it needs to be. And it's out of your control. You're just, it's done. Um, You really need to be able to show that you've been a responsible person in securing your own supply chain. I think that's a critical point that people just do not understand. If you're going to pass defense information to a subcontractor, you better be prepared to back that up with something in writing stating that they are saying that they're compliant. So we include that policy for our clients Um, I think the other thing is we do training with our clients to explain to them how you have to work with subcontractors. Um, It's not the same as in private industry. In private industry, you do what you want. Um, It's not so regulated. And certainly using subs is no big deal, generally speaking. But defense contracting, it's a whole different world. So um, one is you got to ask your subs. You got to ask your subs. You've got to also flow down these requirements to your subs and make them aware that you're making them uh, responsible for this. So I think that's another huge part of what it is that, um, you know, is is being done out there is the flow down is intensive, you know, all of the major primes are flowing down to the subcontractors. That's why there's so many people that are dealing with this. I mean, I'll tell you, we see probably 100,000 views on our YouTube channel every month. and, And that is a ton of people from the defense industry who are really trying to get this stuff figured out. Um and, and we're happy to serve that, you know, serve that mission, right? Like we're out here giving away this information for free. We feel very strongly there should be an affordable choice when it comes to getting compliant. We are that choice. Um so we really like to, you know, try to try to do what we can to help out. I think another thing is, you know, if you you've got to have an IT use and cybersecurity policy in place and that and that policy has got to dictate that information cannot flow to subcontractors without. Um, verifying that they're compliant and okay to send that information too. So again, it's another policy and training uh, that we talk about. I think another one is, you know, the, the visitor policy. If you're having some contractors come to your facility, they can't just have access to CUI. They need to be escorted. You need to have them probably sign a policy recognizing that if they see a cyber incident on-premise that they've got to report it. Um, it's pretty nuanced, to tell you the truth, Roman. I think there's a lot to it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, uh, I, I think there is a way to do this comprehensive, uh, comprehensively. Um, and it's certainly something we deliver as a policy package and a training package for our clients. Um, but if you're sort of reading this and for whatever reason, you're trying to go about this on your own. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I would emphasize is documentation, you know, and, and cover, cover your butt, right? Like that's, uh, I think you've got to understand that you've got to be able to prove to an assessor that you've done the right thing. And you really need to feel good about your level of documentation, both for your subcontractors that they're verifying that they're compliant and doing what they need to do, uh, but also um, you need to feel good about the concept of, uh, you know, your own training internally as well. Hopefully that helps.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely it does. I think there's a lot of good tips in there. Uh, we're going we're gonna to shift gears a little bit, uh, pun completely intended for this next question. Um, with, with time comes innovation. Like everything else, technology can be a huge asset. What role does technology play, if any, in ensuring supply supply chain resilience in defense contracting? Ooh, that's a good question.
1: Um, And I'm going to give a really controversial answer to this because I think a lot of people out there would disagree with this. But that's also because there's a lot of people out there hawking solutions that I think are completely unnecessary to buy when you're getting compliant. Um, I'll tell you, this is a compliance standard, you know, and I think that the reality of a compliance standard is it's a compliance standard that essentially is there to make your own system secure. So what I'll tell you is, um, while I think that technology has some element in this in terms of the actual securing of your information, but outside of that, the actual tracking of compliance, I think there's very little to no technology really required. So I'll give you a a couple of examples. Number one is the first time we work with a client, we are typically doing nothing more complicated than Word documents and Excel documents. It does not need to be more complicated than that. Um, When we're doing a virtual compliance officer service, right? So we'll kind of call that like the next step in the ladder. You've gotten compliant, or at least you've gotten your plans together. You've gotten your documentation, and now we need a way to track this on an ongoing basis. Um, We've actually built a software as a service application, it's cloud hosted, it's all DFARS and NIST secure and all that kind of stuff. And we've built our own application that assists uh, compliance officers, whether it's our own compliance officers that are done on a virtual basis or your compliance officers on, on an internal basis, or whoever it is, maybe it's an IT director that's tracking compliance. And we've built an application that allows them to have a system security plan, have a plan of action with milestones, track the changes, log every change, um also a central housing for policies and documentation training videos everything really associated with compliance uh it's a central portal for that and it's really cool and i like the solution a lot and we went to great lengths to build it because you know we need to manage compliance in mass and there's a, a really big reason which is you know our compl- our clients really get audited you know it's not a, it's not a joke we come into contact with dcma a lot we come into contact with uh, dibcac a lot Um, We work with other CMMC third-party assessors. And so we needed to build a way, and this is maybe the biggest benefit, that if you get audited, we needed a way to make it so that an audit wouldn't just absolutely consume someone's life for weeks on end. Because there's 110 technical controls. There's typically thousands of pages of documentation involved in even understanding the standard, let alone actually proving that you're compliant with it. So, you know, again, when you get into the network documentation, it can be quite lengthy. And we needed a way to hand over the keys to a compliance portal, to an assessor, say, here's all your stuff, call us with questions, go away, so that the IT director can go back and do their day job, or so the general counsel can do their day job. Um, you know, Because, again, compliance is typically a very small role in anyone's position, unless you're a big enough company to have a compliance officer. So in that aspect, technology plays the normal role, which is a time-saving role. A leverage, a leverage role. Um, and again, just generally speaking, uh, a really good way for companies to take advantage of efficiency. Um, so I think in that regard, it does work. But is it necessary to actually accomplish compliance? I would probably say that outside of some Word documents and Excel documents, you can do it without that stuff. You know, I, I think that you sort of have to choose your own luxury, if you will. And so I think that it's in some ways the compliance aspect is far more rudimentary than most people think. Now, that's getting compliant. When it comes to actually securing your network, um, there is no question. Obviously, that's done with technology. It's done with training. Training is obviously easier to deliver when it's done over technology. Um, You know, how you sort of manipulate and manage the ongoing compliance requirements is another huge factor. It is challenging to keep up with all of the updates of compliance. Every single year I say to myself, huh, NIST SP-800-171 really hasn't changed this year. And yet I find that we learn more and more as the government releases more and more information, the cyber AB releases more information. We just generally learn more and more about how to do this better and better. Uh, I will tell you in the last 24 months, the number of policies and standard operating procedures we're delivering has tripled. Uh, We've really stepped up our level of documentation delivery. We've really stepped up the number of things that we're telling clients to do from a policy perspective. And so I think, again, maybe that's not technology, maybe it is, but I think in that aspect, there is more to keep up with. And it does begin to get to a point where it can be advantageous to begin looking at who's going to manage your compliance and using some technology solutions there. Now, again, as we look at the actual cybersecurity aspect, the actual meeting of the controls, I think that is highly evolving and quickly evolving. But again, generally speaking, most vendors, uh, most vendors are taking care of that for you. Um, great example is, you know, if you look at a Sophos or a CrowdStrike or any of the, the sort of endpoint management solutions that are out there that are doing the actual protection, we've always had antivirus updates. We've always had heuristic updates. Um, and so I really do believe there's nothing net new there. It's just sort of as cyber threats evolve, the solution to solving them will have to evolve um, and I don't think that's anything really new to anybody who's in IT management. I think it's always been that way. Uh, I think the one thing that I think is different is um, you're, you're certainly going to have some level of evolution in the quality of, this, uh, of the same solutions, you know, the security information and event management solutions. I think that was young when this was first coming about, and I think it is continuing to get more and more mature and easier to manage uh, for, you know, for IT managers who want to do it themselves. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think technology is a mixed bag in this, you know, at the end of the day, compliance really requires a human to review it to verify that things are in place, still trust, but verify. And so this is kind of an old school, uh, sort of more traditional area of practice, uh, because humans just have to be involved, It's not something you can automate. And, And that's another great, great line of thought, which is there's a lot of solutions out there in compliance that claim to automate, or sort of do it for you. And I'm going to tell you, if there's not a human involved in looking over every aspect of this, I'm sorry, but I just don't really trust it. You know, again, there's a lot of compliance platforms out there. There's a lot of solutions out there that say that they're compliant. And you're and they're probably right, right? The platform itself is probably compliant, but that's not holistically solving the issue. And I think it's one of the reasons why we didn't go about solving the problem for defense contractors in a way where we develop software or security solutions we said, hang on a second, we want to come and solve this from a holistic, accomplish the mission perspective. And the mission is getting you compliant. It's not solving for one aspect or one system that needs to be compliant. You may be buying a solution for a system that may fall out of scope of compliance. And so there is a right way and a wrong way to do this. And I personally think it always pays to bring in a consultant so look at the scope of what you're making compliant before you start buying up technology solutions to solve a problem that might not exist. So hopefully that helps. That's a great, it's a great question. It's a really mixed bag question.
0: All right, no technology, no problem. <laughs> and I'm glad you're laughing because it's that time. It is It is silly question time. And this one is a doozy. Uh, speaking of Speaking of humans being needed to to get this stuff done. You may not be able to automate it, but can you mysticize it? The question is, have you ever used the crystal ball to predict supply chain disruptions? It's a, it's a great question. You know,
1: I'm is gonna it go a little- though, per- is,
0: is, that- it, is, is it a great question?
1: <laughs> it is a great question. Uh, and, and you know, I'm gonna answer that question with with something on my my own personal life. Um, you know, as, as a lot of our listeners, uh, you know, and viewers know, you know, I'm I'm a super big car guy. I'm into racing and I, I have quite a bit of fun there. Um, I, I was actually putting a racing transmission in uh in my, my hobbyist race car that I have. And I was all excited about this transmission. And um it was right around March of 2022 that I finally said, all right, I'm gonna pull the trigger, I'm gonna order this new transmission. And you know, I, I reached out to the builder. I said, "All right, let's go." Uh, and he said, "All right, cool. Uh, let's get started." We put in the order in like March. Uh, and the challenge was that the people that made the transmission were over in the UK. They were you know, so they're in Europe. And the transmission is basically made out of a lot of aluminum. And you know, this is nothing to do with the work that I do. This is like a fun personal hobby project. And so we ordered the transmission. And it was March and we get to April, we get to May, we get to June and I go, hey, what's wrong on with this transmission? And he goes, I don't know, man, they're being really weird about it. And finally he calls him up and, you know, they basically explained to him, hey, so there's this war going on in Ukraine and essentially the war just sucked up all of the aluminum in all of Europe to go towards the war effort. And I thought to myself, how insane is that, that my little American racing hobby, you know, has now been affected by a war going on in Ukraine. And it's gonna be months before they have aluminum back in stock to be able to build this transmission. And so the level of unpredictability is extreme and it's not, you know, and it's worldwide. So again, this is like not war related. This is a personal story, you know but that aluminum was not American aluminum. That That aluminum was over in the UK and it was in a, a car that was, you know not an American car, but being raced in America. And so, you know, supply chain is a huge, huge ordeal. Um, we live in a global economy. I mean, it's it's really that simple. You know, there's there's not a lot of things that really get produ- produced. They may be produced domestically, but there's pieces and parts and materials that come from all over the world and almost everything. So, you know, do I have a crystal ball or can you can you can you do some crystal ballage, if you will, about about supply chain, I think that answer is uh, absolutely not. And I'll tell you, there's two reasons why. One is you can forecast supply chain, um, and I think people do that to the best of their ability, like they try to forecast their own company's financials. But the reality is, is that forecasting is a guess, uh, and I think supply chain uh, is a guess as well. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell another story, and this is not one of uh, this is not a personal story. This is more of a business story of several of our clients. We have a lot of clients in the precision machine and manufacturing space, right? So these people take raw materials, raw metal, and they form them into finished components. And uh, they have had a really hard time over over the course of 2023, because um, what happened as it was explained to me is they put in all these orders for material. And this is when China was in lockdown. And China is a great raw materials producer. They've got the workforce for it. They've got the factories for it, et cetera. So American defense contractors put in tons and tons of orders for raw materials. And what they did is they put in the orders and they were warehousing them. They were buying extra warehouse space because the the problem that they had before this was they couldn't get the raw materials. And so they were backordered months and months and months. And so what wound up happening was they never when China's supply chain came back online, which was, by the way, a completely unpredictable event. It was essentially a public revolt when someone died because of their own lockdown. That's the reason China came off lockdown. There wasn't any other reason, okay? There was basically a people's revolt about the the COVID lockdown in China. Then they released the lockdown. Then everybody in China went back to work. And then all of a sudden we went from a deep um, lack of materials to an incredible surplus of materials on the market. Can you predict that? I don't think so. I don't think you could predict that with a crystal ball. I don't think you could predict at that, that point in time with that revolt over in China was going to open up China's markets overnight. Uh, and so, you know, no, I think that supply chain planning is very intelligent. The U.S. government did that study as early as they did, realized they've got a really massive problem with that. Um, and I think for for you know us, you know, or, or you, if you're listening to this, you know, this podcast or seeing this on YouTube or wherever you're seeing this. I think it's incredibly critical that you understand that you play a huge part in that. It's really a big responsibility to do supply chain planning and most importantly, securing your systems so that you don't have an operational fault uh, from a cyber attack and you're legally obligated to do it anyway for the defense industry. So no, uh, no, I don't think there's a crystal ball, but I tell you what there is. There is a way to plan for it. You know, supply chains ebb and flow, but you know, they don't have to ebb and flow that much. There are ways to be able to smooth out that curve, and I think that for, um, you know, looking at the ultimate goal of the DfARS and NIST principles, uh, and what we're doing together uh, as a defense industrial base, it's all about smoothing out that supply chain and smoothing out that curve so that there's less, you know, downward spikes of inability to produce. And, uh, and also for, for you guys, you know, uh, upward spikes of, you know, just hanging on to surplus materials and, and frankly, not running the company as efficiently as you could. So, um, so yeah, it might be a silly question, but I think that there's a very serious and good way, uh, as I always, as I always turn it, uh, to, to make some, um, you know, to, to make some good
0: arguments there, but great question. Great question. You, you can't predict the unpredictability of human revolt, but, uh, but let's let's especially during an during an unpredictable time that it was. But uh, let's be glad that that happened because you know it it led to a like you said a surplus of goods and materials that were that were very much needed. From crystal balls to human revolts, this has been another great episode of Mission Compliance, and this wraps up another great one. Uh, we hope our discussion today has provided you with valuable insights, practical strategies. And inspiration to navigate the ever-evolving world of defense. We'd like to extend our heartfelt appreciation to our guest, Mike Frieder, once again, for sharing his expertise and experience with us. Thanks, Mike.
1: Hey, always a
0: pleasure, Roman. But the conversation doesn't end here. We encourage you to continue exploring these topics and connect with us on our social media channels. Share your thoughts, ask questions, and engage with fellow listeners by using the hashtag Mission Compliance Podcast. That's us. You can also Visit our website at missioncompliancepodcast.com for show notes, transcripts, and bonus content. If you haven't already, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to be the first to know when new episodes like this one are released. And we'd truly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review the show. Your feedback helps us continue to bring you thought-provoking episodes and high-quality content. Join us on the next episode of Mission Compliance, where we delve further into the dynamic world of defense, security, and industry innovation. Until then, take care, stay informed, and make compliance your mission. We'll see you next time.